0: welcome to the extra environmentalist your opposable thumb means nothing
1: this is what we
2: want to be we don't want to be americans or germans or english we want to be
3: extra environmentalists
4: always feel wherever you go
2: that you are a stranger the outsider the one looking in. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you.
0: Whenever you think about the monetary system, images of great piles of cash, bank vaults and armored cars are what comes to mind. We are all part of it, and most attempts to avoid using currency as a medium of exchange in our modern Western society is met with questions and funny looks. Governments across the globe have used banks to make loans and create money that has led to an economic instability and financial crisis. And yet, when we look for ways to fix the problem, little attention is given to the broken monetary system. In today's episode, we talk with Ben Dyson of Positive Money UK about his new book, Modernizing Money, why our monetary system is broken and how it can be fixed. We talk about the history of money and what a new system might look like. Ben Dyson joins us from the City of London, and so
1: does our second guest on the 75th podcast of The Extra Environmentalist, Brett Scott, the author of The Heretic's Guide to Global Finance, Hacking the Future of Money. We talked to Brett about what it was like to bring an outsider's perspective to his job in the world of selling derivatives and so many of the misconceptions we have about the financial world and what our system of finance actually does brett clears up these misconceptions as we talk to him about ways to disrupt and re-engineer many of our financial flows to address our ecological and social problems
0: this is the action environmentalist i'm seth Katz, and i'm justin ritchie this is episode number 75 and we'll
1: jump right into our conversation with ben dyson of positive money uk <laughs>
3: With the whole quantitative easing thing there's been a a lot of people complaining about the fact that the central bank and the Bank of England has been creating money. What they don't realize is that actually money is created all the time, it's just that usually money is created by the commercial banks. So you know the banks that were implicated in the financial crisis, the same type of banks that you'll have your bank account at. 97% of all the money that exists is actually just numbers in computer systems and the, the money that you see in your bank account, it's not a pile of money that's in the bank. It's actually just a number in the computer system of that bank. So, most of the money that we have now was actually created by the banks when they made loans. Without going too deep into the accounting of it, basically, those numbers that you see when you check your bank balance is a promise of the bank to pay you and it's recorded as a liability of the bank. So, the vast majority of all the money that exists now is in this form of liabilities of banks and that money is created by banks when they make loans this is a big thing that a lot of people don't really realize when you put your money into the bank it doesn't stay your property it's not just sitting there waiting for you to come back and take it out if you pay cash into a bank that cash actually becomes a property of the bank it's not yours anymore what you get in exchange is this IOU this liability from the bank to you now if you look at kind of what happened in Cyprus and actually what happened in the US and everywhere where you know banks have failed is that the IOUs that they have they can't actually pay them because they lent to people who couldn't repay and because of that they couldn't actually honor these sort of IOUs that they had to their customers. Now what's happened in Cyprus is what normally happens is that when one of these banks fails the government steps in and says we'll guarantee everybody's money so this happens in I think in the US it's up to about 250,000 dollars in the UK it's about 85,000 pounds and the government says okay don't worry about what happens to the bank if the bank fails we will use taxpayers money to give you some money back in Cyprus they've said they're not gonna do this because quite a lot of that money belongs to you know wealthy Russians for example I mean Cyprus is a bit of a tax haven so there's a lot of money that's just there to avoid been taxed in other countries but what they've actually done is said you're not gonna get all of your money back now we're not gonna use other people's money to reimburse you and we're actually going to reduce the balance of your account now people have sort of misinterpreted it as thinking that there is some money in the bank that belongs to the account holders, the depositors and that the government has said actually we're gonna take that money out of the bank and we're gonna take it for ourselves but the reality is that you know, there never is any money in the bank because cash now is just 3% of all the money that exists. What they're doing is not taking money away from the depositors and then giving it to the government. They're actually just reducing these IOUs that just existed in a computer system, really. There was never anything real behind it. So they're just converting those IOUs into shares
1: that are held in the bank, basically.
3: Yeah, yeah, that's it. I mean, these IOUs, we think that if you have $100 in your bank account, then that's worth $100. Really, it should only be worth what the actual assets of the banks are. So, a lot of these banks at the moment, if if you put your money into, say, like a mutual fund or into the stock market, then you expect the value of that to go up and down all the time. But banks are a little bit strange because they have this thing where the government guarantees the money that you've invested in them and also that most people when they put money into the bank don't realize they are actually making a loan to the bank or investing. Yeah, and that's um, something that I
0: really want to clarify here. The fact that you said that the money is not even yours. Now I understand when you're buying into the stock market or into a mutual fund or some kind of bond that you're you're taking some risk there, but most people I would I would imagine when you're putting your money into a bank account, it's a, into in savings or in something that's in my mind would have relatively low risk. You're hoping and you're kind of counting on the fact that that money is going to be there. And to wrap your mind around the fact that it's not really your money anymore is kind of a interesting idea.
3: Yeah, the thing is, we're brought up from being children to think that a bank is somewhere where you should keep your money safe. And you start with a piggy bank, putting a few coins in and then when you get a bit older, you open an account at a bank and you think you're putting your money in there. So that when you go back to the cash machine, you can take the money out again. We've seen surveys that have been done in the UK where they've questioned a thousand people. And about 30% of people believe that when they put the money in the bank, it just stays their property. You know, it literally sits there waiting for them to come back. And that just isn't the way it works. And that's really a shocking point for
1: so many people that they don't own that money that they're putting in the bank. I hear so many times that all our money is created out of debt. So is that the case? Let's talk about how the process by which money is actually created.
3: Okay, so remember that the numbers that you see in your bank account are actually just a record in the bank's computer system. It's an IOU. So in in accounting terms, it's recorded as a liability. Now, but if you imagine, I'll give you some sort of basic bank accounting. If you get a notebook and draw a line down the middle, and on the left-hand side, you write assets. On the right-hand side, you write liabilities. And the assets is basically everything the bank owns, and the liabilities is everything that they owe to other people. So firstly, your bank account is on there as a liability. So if you have hundred pounds or a hundred dollars in your account, then on the bank's balance sheet, there'll be a hundred dollars, which is a liability to you. Now, when they make loans, what they do is they increase the assets and the liabilities of the bank at the same time. So you sign a contract saying you're going to borrow a hundred thousand dollars to buy a house. And that's a legal contract. So that goes on the asset side of the bank's balance sheet. On the other side, they open an account for you and they just type a hundred thousand in there. And the contract that you sign to promise to repay the money is what actually balances that new liability that they create to you. So, the vast majority of all the money that exists is actually created when banks make loans. Now, what that means is there is as much debt in the economy as there is money. And in fact, actually, the situation we've got to now is that in most countries, there is more debt, we actually owe more to the banks than we actually have in our bank account. So if if we took all the money that we have, use it to pay off the debt, there'd still be some debt left over that we couldn't possibly pay off. So in that case,
1: if we paid back all the debt that we owed to the banks, would there be any money left at the end of the day?
3: Well, no. So this is the other side of it. So when when you take out a loan, new money is created. When you pay back a loan, that money disappears and it's just because of the accounting happens in the opposite direction so the problem we have now you know we had a a financial crisis that was caused because people had borrowed too much and were in too much debt and couldn't continue paying that what people have been trying to do now is reduce the debts but once you start doing that once everybody starts doing that then the amount of money in the economy starts to shrink and if you start to shrink the amount of money in the economy it's a bit like taking the oil out the engine of your car you know everything starts to to grind to a halt And that's when the
0: government steps in there and prints an enormous amount of money so
3: that we can keep that liquidity flowing. Exactly, exactly. So that was the idea behind quantitative easing is if they hadn't done anything, the amount of money in the economy would have shrunk as people paid off their loans. So I think in the UK, if there wasn't any quantitative easing, the amount of money would have shrunk by 15 to 20%. But what the problem is with quantitative easing is the money – that has disappeared from the economy has disappeared from what we call the real economy, so like the non-financial sector, so businesses and households and families. So businesses and families have been paying down the debt. so the money has been disappearing from that part of the economy. And what quantitative easing has done is it's recreated that money, but it's gone and put it into the financial markets. So what happens when you put money into the financial markets is it it doesn't then – reach the real economy, it just stays going around in the financial markets. So this is why the stock markets now are nearly as high as they've been in history, even though the actual economy itself is quite weak and why personal debt is as high as it's ever been.
0: But that doesn't necessarily mean that it's a bad thing. If we have trillions and trillions of dollars in debt, it just means that we have all that money flowing around in the economy, right?
3: Well, the the problem is If you have all that debt, then somebody actually has to be paying the interest on that debt. And for every, you know, $100 in your bank account, somebody somewhere in the economy has the opposite side of that. They have the debt. Now, the more money you have, the more debt you have in the current system, and therefore the more interest you have to be paying. We figured out the figures for the UK, the amount of money that is being transferred from each person to the banking sector, across the whole economy as an average is is somewhere between two and four thousand pounds a year so that you've got this sort of continual transfer of income and wealth to the banking sector now some of it comes back in the way of sort of taxes and a bit of interest on your savings but in the middle there's this huge amount of money that is being basically creamed off by the banks and this is one of the reasons why you know why banking is so well paid and why banks are such profitable businesses or at least were before the crisis When in in reality, if they didn't have this power to create money, their profits would be much lower and the, the salaries there would be much lower. It's sort of artificially inflated by this ability that they have to create money. So if I go
1: in and sign a mortgage agreement and agree to buy this house through the bank and I'm getting that money from the bank to basically cover the cost of the house and then I pay the bank back in a way, isn't the bank creating credit instead of money? Are banks creating credit instead of money in this case?
3: Well, this is something that economists often say, and they say, well, you know, actually, banks don't create money, they just create credit. Now, let's go back in history a bit. In the UK, in the 1840s, banks used to print paper money. And, you know, we all know now that if you, you print your own paper money at home, you get the police coming through the door. But <laughs> they, they each had their own printing press, well, in those days, they did, because what would happen is you would walk into the bank with some coins. Uh, in that time, the only type of money that the government created was coins. So you'd walk in with this bag of coins, put it in the bank. The bank would give you a piece of paper to say you've deposited you know, $5. And then you take this piece of paper. I mean, this, was, this piece of paper was the note that you got from the bank. So it was a, a bank note. So you would take this piece of paper. And then next time you want to buy something in the, the village or in the market instead of going back to the bank to get the coins and all the hassle of that, and then they, you give the coins to the shopkeeper and he, he's just going to go straight back to the bank and put them back in. What you actually do is you give the piece of paper to the shopkeeper. And he looks at it and he says, well, I, you know, I know the bank at the end of the street, so I'm going to trust this is good for the money. And he keeps that and then he spends it with somebody else. And basically these notes, these receipts that the banks were giving out started to be used as though they were as good as money. And basically when the banks realized that they could basically write a sum of money on a piece of paper and people would actually accept it as though it was real money, then naturally, eventually, they started to create too much of this paper money. So in the 1840s, they kind of took it too far and it caused sort of financial instability, it caused house prices to start going up, uh, it caused a lot of, sort of speculation and bubbles. And then the government of the day it was a, a conservative prime minister who stepped in and said, well, we can't trust banks to create money because they're going to create too much of it. So they passed in 1844, they passed this piece of legislation called the Bank Charter Act, which was to prevent banks from being able to create paper money. And then that piece of legislation still stands. What they didn't do, obviously in the mid 1840s, is they didn't realize that we would have internet banking, debit cards, all of these sort of electronic means of payments. So when the law was written, it only applied to paper money. It never applied to the electronic money. So now, almost all of the money we're using is electronic money but the legislation has never been updated to take account of that electronic money. Because of that, we've allowed the banks to create almost all of the money that we're using in the economy now. So coming back to that sort of question of whether it's credit or money, it would be credit if there was some kind of risk involved. You know, if you knew that putting your money in the bank is actually making an investment and making a loan to the bank, where it becomes money is that the government comes in and says even if the bank can't actually repay you we're going to use taxpayers funds to repay you so basically they make it risk-free and once it's risk-free there's not really any practical difference between electronic money in a, a bank account that's guaranteed by the government and actual paper money that has been created by the government so it's that deposit
1: insurance that turns the uh the bank assets into money as opposed to credit.
3: Yeah, yeah, it's the bank's liabilities that we are using as money. If there was a genuine risk that you could lose all that money, then you may be able to argue that it's credit. But actually, when the government guarantees all of that, they make it risk-free and basically convert it into money that's as good as cash.
0: So having a, a sovereign body backing it up is essential to making this whole system work. Is that
3: correct? Well, yeah, because if you didn't have the government guaranteeing everything, if you had a genuine sales pitch from the bank, it would run something like this. It's basically, give us your money, we're going to lend most of it to somebody else. You know, we're never going to be able to repay you at the same time. If you come back on a day when everybody else doesn't want their money, we'll be able to give you something back. But if you all come back at the same time, you won't get a penny. And that would be the honest sales pitch, which would make banks much riskier than things like the stock market and the mutual funds where you actually understand what risk you're taking. Worst commercial ever for a bank. <laughs> <Yes>. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, yeah, if the, if the government wasn't there to stand behind all this, then a, not a lot of people would trust banks. And this idea that they're safe and they're somewhere safe to put your money is, is a complete myth. It's just based on people not really understanding how banks work. And you know, partly that, that's because they're not taught how banks work at university or even in school.
0: Alright, so let's back up, let's broaden our scope here for a minute. Let's go back to the 1840s when the government disallowed banks to make paper money and let's let's o- open their scope even more and, and look at the benefits that banks and the money systems have given us. We've had lots of technology increases, we've had increased healthcare, transportation, lots and lots of material gains in the world, but we've also had an increasing disparity between the rich and poor, this gap that has widened and widened as we've gone into history. I'm wondering how you think this system has worked out in the past, what, 200 years?
3: Yeah. Okay, so the the first thing, we have hear this argument quite often that the current banking system has led to the Industrial Revolution and all of this technological progress and, and discovery of science and medicine you have to think about this carefully because what it says is that if you put money into the right parts of the economy and you provide entrepreneurs and scientists with money and resources and they'll come up with brilliant ideas and create things that will prove quality of life what the banks do these days they don't do that anymore they don't really invest in the real economy or give you the figures for the UK the amount of bank lending that actually goes into the economy into the real economy that goes into businesses, is about 10% of everything they do. So the other 90% of their lending is going into things like property, financial markets, well investment in the financial markets, and things like consumer lending, credit cards and personal loans. So actually they have sort of over time they've shifted to a point where now they rarely invest in the real economy. They're not actually supporting entrepreneurs and business people anymore. So Um, a lot of non-tangible items. Yeah, well, things that actually just don't lead to an increased quality of life or increased production or increased sustainability of the economy. It's things like basically wealth extraction instead of wealth creation. In the past, banks used to invest in wealth creation by getting money to entrepreneurs. These days, they don't. They use their ability to create money to do wealth extraction. So things like pushing up house prices so that anybody who wants to buy a house needs to borrow two or three times more than they would do 10 years ago, and therefore has to pay at least three times more interest than they would do in the past. But the other thing is as well is quite often the the lobbyists for the banks argue for this, that you need banks to be able to create money to have all this progress. But the reality is that sort of entrepreneurs and scientists and you know these sort of inventors, they actually want to create things. They will innovate and they will do things like that. Now, if you're trying to run a business, that is doing technology or trying to create something new the best thing for you is that the economy stays stable so that you each year you're building on the work you did the year before the worst possible thing is that every six or seven years there's a recession that means you lose your funding for your business that nobody wants to invest in the things that you're creating that you have to lay off staff and let them go which means you lose all the skills and the expertise that they built up so basically the the current banking and monetary system is actually causing these recessions that are actually slowing down progress because when this recession happens all of the work that people were doing before then suddenly stops because apparently there's no money and we can't afford to do this anymore so I, I would actually argue that the progress we've had especially recently is, is, is happening in spite of the banking system working in the way it does not because they have the ability to create money so it's the magnitude of the bus cycle and the
1: boom bus cycle that stifles innovation that stops people in businesses from continuing working along, inventing some new great technology or process in society, because then they're laid off because their business has cash flow issues.
3: Yeah, yeah, completely. And I'll give you an example of this. Somebody that I know quite well, who works in sustainable building technologies had made an agreement with a brick factory to produce this kind of brick which retains a lot of the heat so it's much more energy efficient to heat these homes. And they had everything ready to go and then the financial crisis hit. And their response was okay we need to be really careful now so they cancelled everything that wasn't their actual core business. And because of that this whole project has been delayed by five or possibly ten years. And this sort of technology that would reduce how much energy we need to heat homes in the UK, that's been postponed for another 10 years. So actually the current system is actually standing in the way of a lot of the progress we could be making.
2: Markets, so called, I prefer to call them submerging markets, they're all devaluing their currencies. We've had about uh, 12 countries devalue just this week, Kazakhstan devalued by 19%. And part of the story is that they are reacting to recent developments elsewhere. One is the decision by the Federal Reserve to uh, taper its quantitative easing, its purchases of bonds every month, which have tried to hold uh, interest rates low. Argentina is experiencing by far the, the largest evaluation here, about 15 to 16%. Luis and Mariana, like every family in Argentina, have learned to live with constantly rising prices. They cope, but it's never
4: easy. What I do is I try first try to use the credit card and uh, try to make as many pay- payments as you can. Try to pay things in say 12 months from now, or 12 payments, uh, so because a year from now the same amount of money is going to be less valuable.
2: Growing your own is one way of beating the price rises.
4: I don't know if prices are going to be increased, say, 25% or 30% or 40%. Buenos Aires city bus fares rose on Thursday. Taxi
2: prices went up last month. Inflation in Argentina is a daily reality. The government maintains that inflation is under control at about 10% a year. Many independent economists dispute that figure, saying it's more than 25%. China may be slowing down its purchases of imports, which has helped uh, developing countries like uh, Argentina and Brazil and South Africa that are exporting commodities uh, enormously in the last decade.
5: The world's largest solar panel maker located in China has defaulted on a $541 million debt payment. Suntech's financial woes come as prices of solar panels fall. There is oversupply on the market right now and Chinese manufacturers have been blamed for this. The US and Europe have filed trade suits against Chinese manufacturers for selling the panels below cost. Another major Chinese solar company is facing financial troubles. LDK Solar said it missed a $23.8 million bond payment yesterday because of a quote temporary cash flow shortage. Similar to Suntech, LDK accumulated a large amount of debt. LDK's money troubles underlying a tough environment for China's solar industry. Despite falling prices for solar panels, Chinese companies maintained high production. They continued to borrow with the aid of state-run banks, creating a mountain of debt not easy to pay off.
6: With some leverage in the rest of the world, which actually gave China a lot of growth. When the world started deleveraging with the global financial crisis, China didn't really understood that. Except they kept sending these high growth targets, and as a result, they had to incur debt. They had to leverage up themselves to get the high GDP growth. And one of the troubling things is, in March of this year, Hu Jintao set the economy on a 7% growth path through 2020. You look at what actually happened since 08 to 2012, half of all spending was on in industrial capacity, only about 24% of the in infrastructure. Here's the problem, right? They're building a lot of capacity at a point in time when global demand was weakening. Now you have an excess capacity problem. We worry that excess capacity will get worse from here. In a couple of years' time, we think you could reach a critical level where the entire industrial complex in China would look all like a steel industry, which you all know is in a
7: lot of trouble. They're making fortunes right now. They think they've died and gone to heaven or won the lottery or something. But unemployment in America is higher now than it was before 2008. This hasn't solved any problems. Yes, if you, they're printing a lot of money. Obama's spending a lot of money. The people are getting all of this money and their friends are very happy. They think things are great. But under all, the overall situation underneath is deteriorating more and more and more.
2: Inflation in Venezuela is the highest in the world and one of the issues, along with rising crime, that fueled the recent anti-government protests. In January, prices rose more than 3% over the previous month. The annual inflation is 56%. Prices rise almost daily and there are shortages of many basic food items.
3: Our daily routine is not to go to the gym or the cinema, but to go
1: from one supermarket or shop to another. I go to one and they've got nothing. I go to
3: another and they've got sugar. But there's no cooking oil, no butter, no cereal or flour.
2: With the Venezuelan Bolivar losing value, the US dollar is where people seek stability. With the official exchange rate paying 6.3 bolivares to the dollar, a vibrant black market has developed, paying much, much more. About 80 at the unofficial black market rate. Carrying large amounts of cash around is just one problem. A dollar shortage has affected imports. These car showrooms are empty. I wanted to talk to the manager, but with nothing to sell, he's not come to work.
0: We just see everything very short-term. We don't think about what's going to happen next year. We think about what's going to happen next week or next month. So you don't really think about saving. That's just out of the question.
7: The world is in the process of changing. The financial center has had its 30 years. Now it's going to be the people who produce real goods. You should buy, become a farmer, buy a farm. You can become a tractor salesman, sell feed, seed, fertilizer, lots of ways to get involved. You could become the agricultural re- correspondent. You love being a reporter? Be the farm car reporter.
8: Got it. Thank you. I'm glad that I found my new mentor, Jim.
0: You're listening to episode number 75 of the extra environmentalists. Today we're talking with Ben Dyson of Positive Money UK.
3: What banks are supposed to do, the way that they can really sort of play a useful part is by taking money from people who have it and don't need it at the time, and then going and investing it in businesses and actually investing it in the real economy so if we can get banks to do that then that help the economy grow it can help us make all this progress and you know technological advancement obviously there's other useful things that banks do as well like if they lend money that allows people to buy houses because obviously houses are expensive and you want to spread that over a number of years that's a good thing if they create so much money that it pushes house prices up and make them even more expensive then obviously that's not such a good thing But yeah, I mean, what they're trying to do, fundamentally, is change banks into a way that they actually return to that sort of role of trying to create value and trying to create wealth instead of extracting it from the rest of the economy, and also a way that sort of makes them more socially useful than they are at the moment.
1: Why is it that so many journalists and economists have such a hard time understanding the bias that's built into the way that money is created. For example, we just ran a conference here in Vancouver, British Columbia, and we had a few hundred people out, and we had some members of the University of British Columbia Economics Department at some of the panels. And there was this one guy who was at the summit, and he was asking at almost every session, what's the impact of money creation on our environmental or social problems, et cetera. And the economists always said that the way that money is created has no impact on that. It has no issue. And why do they think that?
3: Well, it's it's quite incredible, but it's something that has been a problem for probably 40 or 50 years Mm -hmm. that economists these days just don't understand money. They don't really study it at university unless they actually end up doing the banking and finance courses. And what the banking and finance courses teach is this model of the monetary system, which they call the money multiplier. And this is basically a a story that says if somebody walks into a bank with a hundred dollars, the bank will keep back ten dollars and then lend out another ninety. And then somebody else will bring that back to the bank later on after it's been spent, the bank will keep back nine dollars, lend out the eighty one dollars. And this process of sort of multiplying of the same amount of money leads to the creation of new money because every time the money comes back it's counted again. So they get taught this story, which is a massive oversimplification of what happens. Well, actually, it's not a simplification, it's just wrong. But when they're taught this, the conclusion that you get from that is that, firstly, the central bank has complete control over how much money there is in the economy because they control this thing called a reserve ratio. And if they say that the ratio is 10% and they only put a billion pounds into the economy, then this story of how the banking system works suggests that the money supply will only expand to 10 billion pounds. And then if they put more money into the economy through the central bank or they change that reserve ratio, they can control how much money is actually in the the wider economy. But actually, the the whole model is, is wrong. And it's not based on understanding what banks actually do. It's based on economists sitting in their offices and making assumptions about how it works. So one of the things that we did at Positive Money is we worked with another organization in the UK called the New Economics Foundation to actually research exactly how the system works today. I mean, instead of doing it from the textbooks written by economists who hadn't worked in banking, we actually went to the Bank of England, looked through all of their documents about how the system actually works and compiled all this into a, a book called Where Does Money Come From? You know, on the, on the back cover of that book, there's actually a comment from Professor David Miles who is on the Bank of England's Monetary Policy Committee. And what he says is basically the way that money and banking is taught in many universities is very misleading. So, yeah, economists are taught this model that doesn't really describe how the banking system actually works. They rarely then go on to study it. They assume that money is just there, that it doesn't have any effect on how the economy actually works. And quite often they just haven't seen the figures. I doubt any of the economists that you would have spoken to would have been aware that sort of 40% of all the money that was created in the last 10 years went straight into property. 40% of all the money that was created went into the financial markets and just about 10% of the money that was created went into the real economy. So yeah, it's, it's a real problem, economists not understanding money and this is one of the things that we're trying to change.
0: And it's not just economists who don't really understand money, it's journalists and the journalists who report it to the whole world. I know here in the United States, we have an amazing narrative building machine called Fox News who is able to pump out incredible amounts of information and not all of it being extremely truthful. We hear about homes being foreclosed on. We hear about businesses closing, unemployment. But we don't really get down to the nitty gritty about why the money flow is how it is. And we don't hear about the facts that you talk about in your book. I'm wondering why you think it is that people seem to be so uninformed and why that journalists don't talk about these ideas in the mainstream media?
7: Yeah.
3: I mean, one thing you have to realize is that financial journalists are usually journalists who've moved into the financial department. They're not usually people with experience in central banks who have moved into journalism. So they learn what they know about the financial system from the same textbooks and from other journalists. So for a start, there's a lack of good information available to them. But also the problem that you know, if they really wanted to understand how the system works, until we released the book that we released last year, they would have needed to spend about eight months going through all the papers from the Bank of England. That's, that's what we had to do to actually compile this guide to how the monetary system really works. So the information really hasn't been available. It's not been made easily available. And because of that, most of the reporting on the financial crisis has been quite inaccurate. And it's completely missed this money creation aspect of it. So again, this is one of the things that we try to do is try to get journalists to understand how it actually works and also just call them up on it when they're inaccurate. So one of our supporters managed to get the BBC to change a video that they produced that was really inaccurately describing how the banking system worked
1: so we spoke a little bit about the social impacts of the way money is created. Are there environmental impacts on how the money system works? Just because of the process we use to create our money, is that causing environmental impacts?
3: Yeah, well, there's a lot of economists who think it really is, and for example, Herman Daly is one person who has been talking about this a great deal, about how you need to change the monetary system to deal with some of the environmental constraints and the challenges that we have coming up. But just to give you a couple of examples, there's an issue with the whole boom bust cycle, because when things are going well, when the economy is going well, it's possible to get legislation and environmental protection which will help the environment in the long term and help us live more sustainably. But whenever there's a recession, the government of the day says, well, we can't afford this anymore. We can't afford these regulations or these rules. So you actually end up, well, the government ends up trying to unwind a lot of the progress that's been made in terms of environmental protection regulation. And this is happening in the UK at the moment. So at least this real short-termism about how we deal with the environmental crisis. There's also the fact that when you have a monetary system that basically forces half or more of the population into debt. So if you think about like the mentality of people who are constantly living in debt, you don't really have the freedom to necessarily to, to think more sustainably about how you live and if you're trying to pay off this huge mortgage. So there's uh, quite a few environmental economists who believe that it leads to this sort of growth imperative where because of all the debt that is there, you know, which is a product of the current monetary system. People are constantly trying to to grow their businesses to consume, sorry, to produce more in order to earn money to keep servicing the existing debt. Now, if you didn't have all of this debt, then a big part of that sort of growth imperative might be removed from the system. And you could have a system that would run what should run much more sustainably.
1: Now, I hear from a lot of people who are aware of the whole issue of fiat currency, and they say that because the Federal Reserve is pumping out tons and tons of money or that any government is pumping out tons of money it's going to cause a collapse of the currency and it'll become worthless and you know there's this whole hyperinflation doom squad where they're they're basically saying that because of this process our money will become worth nothing is that the case is all of the quantitative easing policies going to cause currencies to just become worthless
3: well it's not really the quantitative easing policy that we should have been worrying about, we should have worried about the ability that banks had to create money in the first place. And if you look at the currency now, in many senses, it is worthless relative to where it was 100 years ago. If you draw these charts of of the money supply, and you can see how it's, I can give you the figures for the UK. In 1970, there was 30 billion pounds in the whole economy. Well, by this year, it had risen to about 2,150 billion. So, you know, many, many times higher than it actually was in that 40 years. Now, in the years before that, it it didn't grow at anything like that rate. So, you know, if you think back to my my grandparents bought a house for uh, about £2,000, and nowadays that house would be somewhere near a million pounds. This is not because the house is worth 500 times more. It's because the value of the money has gone down because so much of it has been created. So... The thing that we should have been concerned about was the banks being able to create money in the first place. All the quantitative easing is doing now is taking over that process of money creation from the banks because they're not willing to lend anymore and therefore they're not creating money. When banks create money, they
0: kind of need resources, I'm thinking, to actually create that money in the long term. When you make derivative markets and you make lots of loans, you don't really need to have physical assets. But eventually, you're going to need some kind of resources to draw back on. And I think you can see that kind of stuff happening with Canada selling off its oil, and Africa with its farmland, to China and Australia mining the heck out of its minerals. We see all this natural resource extraction going on across the globe. Is this be related back to this monetary system? Can we point to this as the reason why this resource extraction has ramped up so much in the past couple decades?
3: Well I think it's an area that we need to do a lot more research on and there are some Herman Daly, for example, and the guys at Cassie, the Center for the Advancement of the Steady State Economy, do a lot more work on this, this sort of aspects of things. So basically, if you allow a bank to create money, that bank decides what the money is to be created for and what it can be used for, you know, they can decide whether they want to lend to a renewable energy project or to oil extraction. So really, it gives the banks the power to decide what gets funded. And naturally, they're going to go for what gives them the greatest short-term profit. So you get like a real lack of long-term thinking. I mean, actually allowing banks to have the power to create huge quantities of money can lead to this uh, resource extraction happening so much quicker because they will fund whatever gives them the greatest short-term profit
1: some people will say that we should just return to a gold standard and use precious metals or silver or gold as our currency. Could we just return to a gold standard or what would happen in that scenario?
3: I think there's problems with a gold standard because, I mean, the reason why people like the idea of a gold standard is because they think it limits money creation. What has happened in the past is that whenever the gold standard has not worked well for governments, they have said, well, we'll abolish the gold standard or we'll come off the gold standard. So it's never really been a proper constraint. What we would suggest is that rather than trying to go back to the gold standard and then, you know, in a few years when it doesn't work, we end up going off it again. What you need to do is get the power to create money out into the open, essentially. So you you find a way of making it transparent accountable to the public in some way limited in the sense that you wouldn't want to allow the government or the central bank to create nearly as much money as the banks have done up until now because you get you know all the problems that we've had recently but so long as you actually get that power to create money out into the open and you make sure it's it's under some kind of democratic accountability i think you would get a much better monetary system you know there's a lot of problems with the gold standard And I don't think it's going to work nearly as well as people think it will do.
0: So we've been laying out some of the, most of the bad things about why this system seems to be unsustainable in so many different ways. I'm wondering, what do you think we can do to start changing this system, uh, making positive inroads into people's lives? And really, I think what most of human existence is about and what people are trying to work towards eventually is not really wealth creation, but happiness for people i mean that's that's usually where i go with that it's kind of naive sometimes it sounds like but how do we increase the overall condition for humanity with with this system and how can we change the banking system to reflect that as an ideal
3: well we do a lot of work on reforming the national monetary system so we're concerned with how you change banks and i mean what we want to do essentially is remove remove this ability that they have to create money (coughs) and to return that power to create money back to the state essentially, so some kind of countable democratic body that is working in the public interest. Now, we focus on that because we think it would make a massive difference to the way the whole economy works and the impact that, that has on people's lives. So to give you, give you one example, house prices at the moment in the UK and in most countries in the world have risen massively over the last sort of 10 years. And this wasn't because People suddenly decided they wanted houses more than they wanted everything else. It was because banks were putting so much newly created money into the housing market. So, if you take that ability to create money away from them, it puts a limit on how quickly house prices can rise. To give you an example from the UK, over the last ten years, house prices have risen threefold. So, something that in the past would have cost about sixty thousand is now one hundred eighty thousand. What that means you know salaries haven't risen that quickly so somebody who buys their first house now instead of somebody who bought their first house 10 years ago the person who buys their house now has to work maybe 40% of their income will go on paying for that house versus possibly 20 or even less what that means is you either work harder you work longer you work for more years you work 5 days a week whereas otherwise maybe you could afford to work 4 days a week and spend a day with the kids And what it's doing is meaning that more of the proceeds that people are actually receiving from their work is going back to the banking system to pay for these overinflated houses. That if you didn't have these overpriced houses, then it would give people more time, more money to put into other things, a bit more freedom in what they actually do. Just even limiting house prices from rising as quickly as they have done would make a massive difference to, to people's quality of life. Some of the other benefits of actually taking that power to create money back to to the state and back to some democratically accountable process. When banks have been creating money, they've basically decided where that money will go. If you make a democratic process in the public interest, then that money can actually be used for things that will benefit society. So for example, the amount of money that banks have created in the UK is about equivalent to the entire national debt as it stands at the moment. So, if the money had actually been created by government and used to fund public spending, for example, you wouldn't have that national debt. Or you can invest in schools, you can invest it in hospitals, you can invest it in sustainable transport, you know, public transport that would mean that we're not dependent on the whole oil economy quite so much. Or you could invest some of that money into renewable energy and actually switching the whole country over to renewable energy. So, there's a whole sort of range of options that you could do with this. If you have kind of a a pro-free market government that wants a small state, they might actually just use this money to cut taxes. But again, you know, if you cut people's taxes, they have more money left over. They can decide what they want to do with that.
1: And uh, so many of us learn that in, like, the textbook history of money that money was created because barter was inconvenient. And so now we use money because it's a much more convenient uh, way to facilitate exchanges. Was this really the case, or... Was there something else involved?
3: So this is another one of these stories that is always taught in economics. And it seems that this whole story came from uh, a book by Adam Smith uh, about 300 years ago. And anthropologists are starting to find is that actually there's not much evidence for this barter situation ever existing. So that, you know, the idea was that you are a shepherd, you have sheep, but actually you want bread. And it's difficult to swap one sheep for a loaf of bread because it doesn't match up. So what, what the barter story says is, well, eventually we started using metal to swap instead of actually trying to swap things directly because it was easier for everybody to take gold coins and then go and buy what they want from somebody else and it was to try and find somebody who wants to swap with what you have. But if you, if you think about it realistically, it doesn't make sense because what would happen in sort of most of the the smaller, you know, tribal societies and the small communities where people lived is they would know everybody. So if you go to the guy who makes chairs and you want one of his chairs, he'll give it to you. And you know at some point you need to give him some food or something in exchange for that chair, but you don't need to sort of sit there negotiating with him about, you know, how many sheep are worth one chair. So what used to happen is actually people would just trade and they'd remember who they owed what, And it would kind of sort of balance out. The anthropological evidence, the sort of historical evidence, suggests that barter really only happened basically between different communities that didn't know each other. So, for example, if there were some nomads traveling through, they would actually barter there because, you know, they would exchange things. They didn't know if these people were ever going to come back to give them anything else. So what the history kind of suggests is that what you actually had initially is kind of a, a sort of credit economy where people just knew what they owed each other in these sort of small communities and then eventually that turned into using sort of forms of money and then now we've gone from using physical money to electronic money and in some senses we're going back to a a sort of credit economy again. You just talked about
0: the history of how money came into existence. How do we take that next step to the new money system? What's the next money system and what what are like the physical on the ground things that are going to happen to make it happen?
3: Well, I mean, there's a lot of different innovations and different ideas about how you change money now, and there's discussion of what you need internationally, how to change the international systems, how to change money so that it's more local and it has more of a beneficial effect on the local economy. We're already starting to see a lot more sort of innovation in terms of how monetary systems work and people are thinking about local currencies and alternative currencies, also international currencies and different ways of bypassing the banks, sort of different ways of doing lending and investing that don't rely on these huge banks to be the middlemen there. What Positive Money focuses on is reforming the national currency. So it's the dollar, the euro, the yen, the pound. And what we want to see is that we take this power to create money away from the banks because we've seen from the last few years that they can't be trusted with it. Like now is the time basically to take that power back to some sort of democratic accountable process where people actually know how much money has been created and how that money is being used. And it's not particularly difficult to do that. We already have all of this laid out in legislation. We have a book which explains exactly and you know step by step how you do this. This is quite an easy thing to do. The the challenge is sort of the political obstacles to, to making these changes. But basically, the system that we've had and that we still have has failed everywhere that it's been tried, particularly in the last few years. You know, this is kind of the end of the current monetary system. And what we need now is something that will get us to that next step where we have a monetary system that actually supports the economy instead of holding it back. So one really great thing that I enjoyed
1: about your book is it's a very clear and straightforward way that explains how money is created and how this whole system works. And it's something I feel like I could give to people who have questions or just like my parents and say like, you know, here's some details about the system. But one of the really cool things in your book is you detailed these two differences between Zimbabwe and historical Pennsylvania's uh, money systems. Could you talk a little bit about the two differences in, in how those two time periods and regions
3: managed money? So whenever we talk about allowing the government to create money, you usually get sort of the, a common response, which is, oh, well, that's what they did in Zimbabwe or in Germany in the 1920s. And the suggestion is always that if you allow the government to create money, they're going to create too much of it. And that's going to lead to hyperinflation where prices just keep doubling every few days or even every day. But actually I mean this this reaction is usually based not on any sort of actual understanding what actually happened. So for example we did quite a bit of research into what happened in Zimbabwe and it's not that the government sat there and said let's print lots of money and that this caused prices to start going up. What well, they actually did, they implemented some very foolish policies that made it very difficult for the farmers to produce the amount of food that they were producing before and basically the economy started to collapse and when the economy collapsed the government wasn't making enough in tax to pay its employees what they did was they went to the central bank and said we need you to print money so that we can pay our employees and that shows when money creation can be dangerous if you're doing it just to fund the government then it can really get out of control quickly and if you allow politicians to have control over how much money is created then they can abuse that power but there's been about 50 hyperinflations in in the world in history that we have record of and what is interesting is that none of these actually happened in a sort of well-functioning democracy they're all in places that had war or some kind of economic collapse or a natural disaster or a dictator running the country so if you allow governments to create money when it's a well-functioning democracy, when it's well-governed, and when you don't allow politicians to abuse the process, then it can actually have very beneficial effects. And this was something that was shown in Pennsylvania in the 1720s. There's one example where, the, at the time, the British wanted the Pennsylvania colony to use British money because it meant that, in order to get the money, Pennsylvania had to produce things and sell them to the UK. What a lot of the people in Pennsylvania were saying was actually we need our own currency so that we're not forced to borrow it from the UK. So what they did was they started printing some money and it was a significant amount but not excessive in relation to the size of the the Pennsylvania economy and this actually had very beneficial effects. It didn't cause inflation because it was well restricted and they put money into the economy waited a bit to see if it had any sort of effect on inflation and if it didn't, then they could afford to put more in. If they saw inflation going up, then they would stop creating new money. So this is an example of money creation where it's been well-controlled, well-governed, and it's actually had beneficial effects for the economy and for the people. But the idea that any sort of money creation by the government leads to hyperinflation is basically it's just based on ignorance.
0: Uh, I think we've come to the end of our interview here. Is there anything that we should ask about a positive money? Anything that... Is really important that we missed and left out.
3: Yeah, I just wanted to say if anybody is interested in learning more about how the monetary system works, what we focus on is trying to make this accessible and interesting. And we take jargon out of it and we try to make it much easier for people to understand. So on the website, positivemoney.org, there are loads of videos, there's links to the books that we've written, there's presentations, and there's sort of easy guides to how this whole system works and the effect that it has. So if you're interested in learning more, then go to the Positive Money website and there's loads of things on there.
1: On episode 75 of The Extra Environmentalist, we speak with Brett Scott, author of The Heretic's Guide to Global Finance, a perspective from the inside of financial institutions.
4: But I bet it won't change. No more. Damn, that's a
8: I'd studied anthropology and international development um, and I was kind of involved in the sort of international development scene as well as the various alternative activist scenes, mostly from a South African perspective because I'm from South Africa. And when I was sort of studying in the UK for a bit, I became aware of just how powerful the financial system was. In South Africa, I hadn't really been exposed to that sort of international finance and I became quite sort of fascinated by the system, but also quite repulsed by it. So after I would finished studying, I guess I sort of thought what would be an interesting thing to go and try to do that might be different to the straightforward route that you might go down as a, a person who's concerned about the world. And so I, I, I designed this kind of experiment also. I'll try and infiltrate into the financial system. And basically, what I ended up working as is uh, I got employed by a startup brokerage in London. So I worked as a derivatives broker, which is to put it in sort of simple terms, you basically try to arrange large scale bets between people in the financial system. And I basically did that for two years. That was a really fascinating kind of way to gain experience of that system, see some of the internal dynamics. And nowadays, I try to use that knowledge to help campaign groups and environmental groups who are trying to grapple with the financial system.
1: One of the big challenges with the financial system is there's this really deep language and it's very layered and a lot of it's very mathematical. And so for so many people when they start thinking about the complexity of finance, just thinking that it's complex turns them off. And doesn't let them access the system or think about it in a way that actually touches their life. And so most people interact with the bank and they think that's my interaction with the financial system or they hold a stock and so they look at the Dow Jones Industrial Average or something and think, oh, it's going up, so that's good, or the value of that stock, it's going up, it's good. How do you help people see their entry point into the financial system because it is so complex sometimes?
8: That's the main objective of my book was to sketch out frameworks by which a person could approach the financial system and not feel daunted by it. And it's actually really, really difficult because lots of people have a lot of preconceived notions in their head about what the financial system is. And actually, even they have a whole lot of mental imagery. If you ask a person to think about the financial system, they'll tend to always think about the same pictures and the same images and the same ideas. They're always associated with, you know, large scale skyscrapers and mathematics and kind of men in suits and there's all these sort of things. The financial system itself the financial sector thrives on that perception. It's that kind of perception in a way which gives it a layer of protection from the public and actually makes it sort of puts a barrier in the way. Whatever I'm doing, I'm always trying to, I guess, humanize the financial system and sort of think about how you bring it down to that everyday person's life. Most people the normal experience of the financial sector is their, their ordinary bank branch, it might be their mortgage, it might be a few of these things. And actually, that's, that's actually quite a good place to start an exploration of high finances from your own personal finances So, or your own experience of money. And to try and sort of see it in the streets, as it were, or actually when you're shopping, for example, using money, um, I often try to use those as ways to get people to sort of think about the broader financial system and how their individual small actions add up to these huge financial institutions. I guess you got, you got
0: a different view of what people on the outside who think of the financial system as this ivory tower of
8: uh, skyscrapers and mathematics is. is. Could you talk a little bit about that? I was sort of working as a as a at a startup company as a broker, quite sort of junior level. And actually, two years of that is not really enough to make you you know an expert on the financial system, but it gives you a very sort of human flavour of it. And the main sort of takeaway is actually the financial sector is an intensely human system. A lot of the perception among the public is often that this is very sort of technical mathematical discipline, but actually finance is all about human relationships mostly. You'll tend to find the mathematical models and things people use are just sort of backdrops to help facilitate human negotiations. And actually, the best way to actually understand is often to look at history, sort of financial history. The financial sector you know, was developing, and a few hundred years ago it wasn't actually that well developed, and never used to be a mathematical thing. It would basically be people with surplus resources who are reinvesting it into new activities. And I guess the, the history of the capitalist system has got a big financial element to it. Basically, people accumulating capital and then redistributing it into new activities. And that's the financial sector developed around that. So actually, you know, the best thing to understand finance is frequently to you know, look at sort of history and and then anthropology in terms of understanding, you know, human power dynamics and human relationships, mathematics itself is not actually particularly useful for understanding finance. That's sort of just a modern addition to, to it. At a base level, finance isn't actually that complicated. It's, as I was saying, it's it kind of springs out of um, sort of advanced economies. Um, If you just think about a basic model of an economy, if you first have agriculture effectively um, and everything else comes from there, agriculture is what leads to surplus production in an economy. You can make more than what you actually need. As soon as you have surpluses building up in the hands of various people, you can start to have a financial system. And then the basic sort of mechanisms that, that are used for that is people either investing as shareholders or as lenders. And that's basically it. All the sort of complicated stuff is within that, that within those boundaries. So if you ever get sort of baffled by a financial professional using all this language, it's just always remember at base level, it's a fairly simple, a fairly simple concept.
1: Yeah, you tune into CNBC and you can see all these numbers just flying across the screen constantly or, yeah, or exactly. television it's just numbers everywhere and it's bewildering
8: yeah and that's an entire sort of illusion and actually you know things like CnBC financial professionals don't even don't even really watch that kind of stuff because it's not very useful actually because <laughs> you know it's yeah it's kind of like I, I think people who mostly watch that are sort of uh, I, I don't Really, know who watches. It. It's, it's probably day traders, people who, who are trying to like sort of make small time <laughs> money in the markets. Because it's not actually very useful to anybody who's directly involved in real financial activities. The real stuff going on in financial markets is much slower normally. And this is one of the ironic things. People have this whole perception that it's this incredibly fast moving kind of world. Stuff like swap markets and those big, oh, the big securitized uh, mortgage markets that cause the financial crash. Incredibly slow moving. And they involve lots of negotiations between. Individual people and large amounts of the money that to be made in that system are frequently about people who have the relationships. So, people who make loads of cash are often the ones who've been able to facilitate a deal. And then there's kind of like a layer on top, which is all the sort of fast-moving, high-frequency stuff. But that's actually a comparatively very new aspect of the financial system. People in a way shouldn't focus on it because it distracts attention from the sort of more underlying things going on. But you're absolutely right. Stuff like financial TV and the way it's presented and the actual imagery is actually gives the public a perception of it. This is incredibly um, technical, incredibly sort of arcane field. But but you always got to think about whose interest does that actually serve. It never serves the public to have that perception. It only helps people who, have, who are considered to be experts. And I frequently find this because I have experience with derivative markets. People defer a lot of power to me. They, they kind of give me this respect for some reason, which they shouldn't do. When I'm doing workshops, I'm trying to stop that.
0: The financial people in our culture are almost like these high priests of the uh, economy. You know, there's like almost a religion in a lot of ways devoted to it. And even when you hear politicians talk about the economy and growing the economy, you're thinking about these guys at Wall Street who are just making all these trades like on the floor with their hand signals and they're moving pork bellies and moving, you know, just different (laughs) things around. So
8: there's like this whole mystique
0: around it almost too.
8: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I guess that's one of the, you know, when you look at sort of like something quite basic like financial education. Some people might ask, you know, why is that a particularly useful thing? But it's actually it's got a, a huge subversive element to financial education insofar as it helps to sort of cut through the crap of the financial system and actually show you that it's a lot less complicated. And actually that's sort of an opening step for then being able, being able to sort of challenge it more. And I guess I used in my book this concept of the hacker ethos, which is how you might sort of quote-unquote hack the financial system. But I guess the analogy I used is a, a person's computer. If you think about the way you interact with your computer or a piece of high technology, you frequently also perceive it as this kind of complicated thing which you interact with in a very one-way fashion. You you know you tap on the keyboard, but you don't actually know what happens. The financial system has a very similar feel to it. We interact with it without really perceiving well what's actually going on behind the scenes. What a hacker would actually do is spend a lot of time exploring the interconnections of the hardware of a computer and the software, seeing how they interact, seeing what's going on, and from that you get the kind of perspective of where you sit in it and what you might be able to do. And I guess that's That's what I was sort of trying to do with with the book is to position people like that, which I think is a more useful mindset than approaching it as a kind of black box.
7: After
1: the 2008 financial crash, there were all of these protests and groups like Occupy Wall Street directly targeting the financial system and its role in inequality and a lot of our social problems today. Is their approach the most effective one? And if not, how would you kind of speak to those groups and say, here's some things that you can start doing to be more disruptive and start changing our relationship to finance?
8: I think Occupy was incredibly effective for how little resources went into it. It now went down quite a lot to the, the London-based Occupy. I mean, it got a huge amount of press attention for comparatively little effort. So, I mean, I think Occupy is a success in many, many ways. And it's also helped to establish a kind of political meme. A lot of people always talk about Occupy. So, I mean, I think it's, been, it's very effective. I mean, I guess where it sort of has been criticized or fell down was the notion of what's your alternative. I think it's a bit of an unfair critique because people shouldn't have to have a coherently worked out plan for the future of humanity every single time they, they sort of express discontent. But, I mean, I guess that the sort of post-Occupy period has been one where people are now more interested in like, okay, what what sort of practical alternatives might we start to articulate? And I think a lot of people who are involved in the Occupy movement actually realize that now. So I guess there's sort of new sort of forms of, not only in the financial sector, but you know, just sort of more economic organization more generally. There's a lot of sort of new business models being thrown out, new modes of organizing being thrown out. But, you know, that's work in progress. But one thing I would, I would do sort of question a bit with the Occupy movement to some extent was, whether the financial system itself was actually challenged by it. As I was sort of alluding to earlier, part of the strength that financial professionals get is by the perception that they're different to everyone else. And the, actually, the 99% versus the 1% concept doesn't really challenge that notion. So whether you think a banker is, 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 a, is evil or like incredibly talented doesn't really matter. It still, it still reinforces uh, that same basic notion. And I guess what we want to see now is a more democratic notion about finances where people are more prepared to sort of see themselves as being more personally in control. And I don't think Occupy managed to quite do that yet.
0: So when you think about these big financial instruments and these big financial institutions there's often this idea that they are evil inherently and they're doing evil f- for the people of the world you know there's people think of the, of these large institutions doing only thinking of themselves and just wanting out, lo- looking out for the bottom line but they're very much made up of people these institutions these large financial corporations are made up of people how come we don't see more people inside of huge corporations working to change direction of them more often
8: well you i think you do i mean it's not much awareness i I think within any large scale corporation is kind of like a political entity it has large groups of people in it who are discontented about the way things are whether it be within the specific corporation or the very economic model that it's using whatever Um, there are always people inside who you might call disruptive insiders of some sort In reality, it's quite hard for anybody within the corporation to change anything for a variety of reasons. First of all, it's a social system. You might be discontented by the way it works, but you don't know if everyone else around you thinks the same. So you're kind of and you potentially might be shunned. This is a big problem for like whistleblowing in financial institutions. There's lots of people who want to who want to be whistleblowers, but they're worried about what will happen if they actually do become a whistleblower, because they might be shunned by the entire friendship group. So there's all these sort of cultural dynamics like that. But then it's also questionable whether even the management of corporations really have that much control over them. In a sense, it's, 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 there's a kind of lack of controllability to a corporation, where Lots of your sort of people in the lower rungs are disconnected from the management. In financial institutions, this is certainly the case. People often, you know, point at Lloyd Blankfein or the various CEOs of the big financial institutions and say, you know, you should just you should change the way your institution behaves. It's very questionable whether they actually have the ability to do that, even if they wanted to. From my experience, there are lots of people within big financial institutions who are actually comparatively progressive in the way they think. Actually, just this last weekend, I met. I met a guy who works at a large bank who who's got a blog um, called Socialist in the City. He's a, a socialist. I mean, like a, like a committed socialist and he's same time working in a financial institution as a financial worker. Um, and there's actually comparatively, there's a, there's a surprisingly large number of these people.
1: So much of our financial logic is locking us into these certain relationships with extractive resources that then end up causing problems like climate change. Do you see the financial sector as a potential way to deal with, with climate change, whether that's you know, mitigation activities or adaptation? We hear about uh, you know the carbon bubble idea and there's a lot of fossil fuel divestment campaigns that are uh, rising up. What's your thought on the idea of fossil fuel divestment and any potential advice from somebody who has a little bit of experience on financial markets to anybody who's in a divestment campaign?
8: Yeah, I mean, I work with quite a few divestment groups in the UK yeah, and I know a lot of the groups around the world are doing that. I mean, the financial system itself, Reflects a broader extractive system in society. So, in some ways, a lot of these campaigns are are, are very partial. It's not like you know, just by by a single financial campaign, you're going to alter an entire system. So, I mean, something like, you know, the basic notion of a profit motive in society or the, the notion that you should be constantly accumulating or, or economic growth as a concept is kind of locked into the financial system. A financial system doesn't have to be like that. A financial system is a, a system of redistributing resources. You can theoretically have a financial system which was designed to redistribute resources within planetary boundaries. And the fact that our current financial system doesn't do that is reflective of a much broader economic problem. Our current financial system steers money towards lots of the projects which then contribute towards climate change. You know, a very simple example being something like the tar sands. The money to develop those tar sands comes from somewhere. It comes from shareholders and it comes from lenders. And those are real people in real places somewhere uh, to start making that decision. And those are highly political decisions they're making because they have huge impacts in the future of society. So your divestment campaigns are, you know, all it is is in a way is simply targeting those people and saying it's not good enough to be doing that. I guess the way to think about divestment campaigns, some people in the financial industry tend to see them as being these very naive kind of, things. They say, oh, you know, if you get one fund to move his money away from some project, just, you know, another investor will come in and give it money. But that's not the point. The point of a divestment campaign is to alter the sort of cultural realm, as it were, to make those types of investments not acceptable. So the best example to think about this is, you know, back in the 1800s or sort of 1700s when things like slavery were acceptable. Um, A lot of your normal, quote unquote, rational investors at that time would have been investing in slavery, more plantations that use slavery. And... That would have been considered normal investment. You know, nowadays, normal investment is considered to be investing in projects that wreck the environment. And, you know, to shift that, you need a lot of different social movements which denormalize the, that idea. Divestment campaigns are basically trying to denormalize the idea that it's normal and fine to invest in, in, in fossil fuels. And they can be very f- successful at that. I guess that, that's the frame I look at them at. And actually, you know, a, a couple of high-profile divestments can actually alter the political landscape and the cultural landscape around what's considered to be normal investment. If you go to a conference nowadays, uh, let's, say, let's say an ethical investment conference and somebody, a fund manager had to stand up and say, hey, we don't invest in child labor anymore. Nobody would have give them any applause. It would be considered to be, that's what you're supposed to do. You're not supposed to invest in child labor. We're not going to give you a brownie badge for not doing that. You know? and, but nowadays, you know, people go and they're considered explicitly ethical and nice if they invest within planetary boundaries. That should be considered normal. It should be considered something you're expected to do, not something that's considered to be nice or ethical. It should be just normal. So I guess that's the end goal of divestment and these types of movements.
1: I was wondering about your thoughts on carbon markets and programs like RED in general. You know, RED, the the program to reduce emissions from deforestation and degradation. How effective are these things and how much of the financial system has to be scrapped entirely? Or are there parts that could actually be useful in the future?
8: For a start, one point I'd first make about red and carbon markets is I don't really explicitly see them as being financial instruments. Actually, in banks and things, you know, these red and carbon credits and stuff actually sit in the commodities desks. They're viewed as commodities. Institutions like the World Bank love the idea of red because it kind of aligns the notion of economic growth with the notion of sustainability. They don't want to sacrifice economic growth at the same time they have a mandate to try and ensure sustainability at the same time. So these types of instruments look like these silver bullets which can solve that. Um, in reality, they certainly cannot. A lot of this stuff is about trying to align a profit motive with a good outcome. You know, To some extent, in, very, in a very small scale sense, a carbon market can actually sometimes do that in individual cases. So for example, you know, I, I come from Durban. Um, in South Africa, and you know, just outside uh, outside Durban, there's a project which was uh, funded via carbon credits, which was basically you know a big landfill site which is sitting there. It's emitting methane into the air. So the the people in the municipality basically built up an anaerobic digester or uh, or something to harvest the methane, um, and they started using it to create electric- electricity, and they just were selling it selling it to the electricity grid. I mean, that project in itself is positive, clearly, and it was it was enabled by the carbon market being present, but you can't say that that in itself is going to in climate change. And I guess this is the big political dynamic around the carbon markets: is can they be used as a sort of a smokescreen for just say that stuff's going on when really there's not enough going on. In essence, a, 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 I mean, there's some sound thing. It's not like a, the, the idea behind uh, behind something like red is totally absurd. I mean, if you if you go down to a, a, a ground level and you can see, like, say, for example, you know. In Indonesia, there's various parties there who might be under economic pressure to destroy ele- sections of the forest, whether it be for mining or palm oil or farming or anything. And, you know, in some ways you can say, OK, look, we'll give you an alternative incentive. We'll rather pay you to not do that via this RED program. You can see that it's tapping into a certain rationality and it might be, able to effective, it might be effective in doing it. But, but you can see it doesn't really, doesn't really change anything fundamental it doesn't really change any structural elements of the problem so it's a very surface level solution but i mean it depends on what time scale you're looking at if, you know uh, sometimes it's a very short term solution and maybe that's sometimes what you need for certain things so. i really like the part you were talking about about renormalizing making
0: normal something different and i think this this applies to a lot of aspects of our economy and our, in our world if you can change what is normal you can change what is in power currently you can make it more acceptable to have a different view. You can really change the whole system, and this goes for a lot of social issues. This goes for, you know, pretty much most things you want to change in this world around that creating that new normal. Do you have any yeah. ideas about how to create that new normal? Do you have any strategies about how other people are going about creating that that new normal idea?
8: You can have two approaches. I mean, you either think that, you know, this has to be some kind of evangelical process where people go around and convince people to think differently about the world, or you think that maybe it happens organically via structural changes in the economy. I mean, for example, technology itself is a very powerful means to change the way people think, uh, especially in Western nations that are kind of in that post industrial phase. People are potentially starting to think differently about what economic life is supposed to be. Um, Not because anybody sort of told them that they should think like that, but just because it's sort of naturally starting to come. What I sort of sense developing right now is is a a more uh, there's a lot of kind of energy around this notion of developing decentralized economies. Where uh, I guess the old industrial model of economies is you know you have these huge sort of corporate conglomerations which pump out huge amounts of product. Um, and then you have to have consumerism as a sort of a backdrop to that, for people to consume the products. And then you've got this sort of capitalist class sucking up all the, all the surplus and making becoming incredibly wealthy in the process. Um, and then trying to redistribute that surplus by the financial sector. And that's your, kind of like your industrial model. And I guess um, in a lot of places, people are starting to see through that. I think there are, there are nascent cultural movements which are trying to develop more commons-based thinking about the world technologically enabled commons the sort of sharing economy type movements and um alternative currency movements a lot of these have a similar ideological structure to them which is all about moving away from a highly acquisitive mindset towards one which is more about collaboration and sharing and i see that that, that that'll be that'll get bigger over time
1: i i wanted to ask about stories of when you were working in the financial world what it was actually like to be there some of the you know we hear about a lot of exotic trades and derivatives and things like even um, in your book you mentioned that hedge fund like there's hedge funds that lend money to poker players to you know uh, potentially get earnings off of playing poker online. Uh, Did you come across any really crazy stuff or have like crazy phone calls where you're trying to sell financial products and you're just blown
8: away at what happened? In some ways, crazy, but in another way, it's very banal, you know, like, I think there's a public perception that, partly driven by films like The Wolf of Wall Street and stuff, which portray the idea that, that the financial world is kind of like gunslinging world of geniuses and deviants. Um, and in reality, most of it's quite banal. And even the sort of geniuses and deviants are, you know, interesting, but not that interesting, so I mean, yeah. I mean, I've had lots of interesting experiences phoning up, you know, financial directors of huge companies and trying to convince them to use some derivative product, and then you know, having some slightly ridiculous conversation with them, you know, like uh, the head of South African breweries, you know, which is the, one of the world's biggest beer makers, you know, trying to convince this person to like use a you know inflation swap. I mean, these these are quite interesting stories in some ways of some people, but when push comes to shove, they, I mean, the financial sector is kind of. I mean, it's like any other job uh, in, in some ways. You, that, that stuff doesn't seem very unusual after a while. A lot of people have a perception that there's lots of kind of deviant behavior going on, like all the kind of strippers and you know, people throwing money around and stuff. I don't really think that's a particularly prevalent part of the financial system. Actually, most of the financial system quite like uh, people working long hours on spreadsheets, basically.
1: Just a lot of using Excel, Microsoft Excel.
8: Yeah, yeah, quite quite dull actually in some ways. Like the stuff I was doing as a broker is sort of comparatively quite lively. But most of the financial system isn't like that. If you think about the huge, kind of like big lending decisions being made by large scale commercial banks, you know, whether we're gonna lend three hundred million to something, those are often, you know, desk based jobs of going out to meetings, talking to people about that, sort of assessing business plans, that kind of stuff. The sort of banality of evil was the kind of uh, term that was coined about it. In some ways, part of the insidious nature of the financial sector is just how straightforward and banal the process of doing these highly exploitative things are. So, no individual person really perceives themselves as doing anything particularly wrong. So, when it comes to something like fossil fuel financing, for example, there's nobody in that in that chain who's sort of thinking, "There, oh, you know, oh, gosh, we're, you know, we're." doing something really abhorrent. As most people are, are sort of, just like it's like a day job. Um, and I guess that in a way makes it a lot harder to deal with. I think in, a, in the imagination of lots of campaigners, they almost want the financial sector to be a realm of this kind of almost Illuminati type figures. Because Illuminati type figures who sit in a room and control the world are actually a lot easier to deal with, a lot easier to actually combat than a much more diffuse, sort of more mundane system. So I guess a lot of my work, I'm trying to get sort of campaigners to think beyond the notion of the sort of bogeyman banker and actually to think more about the sort of more subtle cultural dynamics of the financial system.
1: Kind of the complexity of the whole system and how difficult it is for any one actor to to steer it. And we have just a few last questions for you. And one thing I just want to get your thoughts on really briefly is I was at a, a Clinton Global Initiative event a few years ago. And this is an event by Bill Clinton and his foundation. And they bring a lot of philanthropists in and they have a lot of discussions with really high net worth individuals and people from Wall Street and from hedge funds and different traders who then want to move into philanthropy. And one thing I heard time and again at this event was you can do good by doing well. And so you likely heard phrases like that as well. What what do you think of when you hear that phrase?
8: I want to carry on my normal lifestyle, but I want it to kind of be not as, sort of feel good about it at the same time kind of thing. Uh, It's kind of like a reform ideology. You know, I engage with, say, stuff like the sort of social finance world and which all and sort of environmental finance world, which are all all trying to basically do this. They're trying to say, okay, how do we take an existing system um, and sort of tinker with it to try and make it like less destructive in some ways. And let's not really fundamentally tinker with any of the fundamental principles but let's try and add a layer which makes it nasa as it were and you know don't get me wrong i think there's some there's some value in that but a lot of the kind of doing good by doing well crowd doesn't really question much of the sort of deeper assumptions just to sort of clarify that doing good by doing well i mean basically what you're saying is there's no inherent conflict between a profit motive and social injustice and environmental Environmental justice. So, you can have a profitable world where you're making profit, but you can also have social justice and ecological stability at the same time. A lot of more radical thinkers will say that's wishful thinking. There's something inherent about the notion of profit accumulation, which will drive social inequality and ecological destruction. So, imagining that you can somehow um, have both is just you're trying to preserve. Too much of something. So, and I tend to be in a more radical mindset. But at the same time, I realise the sort of political pragmatism is: if you actually want to engage in these debates, you have to start to deal with with that crowd. And I guess with a lot of campaigners and activist groups I work with, I do get slightly frustrated that there isn't actually more engagement with that type of reformist community, because actually that's where a lot of the political power is. One thing I'd always say to lots of campaigners, anybody who's into in the financial sector, is you have to be spending time in all the different types of uh, communities that are trying to create different types of change. Because you'll sort of start to see where all the political dynamics lie. So I spend a lot of time with you know, in those very mainstream crowds. I also spend time with, you know, the anarchist community and your sort of sharing economy community and the sort of non-monetary communities, all these different types of players and the sort of tech community. It's only when you spend time with those different players that you start to get ideas for how you might do things differently. So you spend lots
0: of time with different stakeholders. Could you talk about any exciting projects that you know about going on?
8: I mean, a lot of the stuff that makes me kind of, I guess, most interested the sort of open source finance, all these types of kind of platforms which are trying to reconnect people to what it means to be part of a financial system. So something like, for example, peer-to-peer lending, it's just basically when you're lending to, directly to people. That might sound like quite banal in and of itself, but there's a lot of actually very interesting psychology and philosophy behind this type of stuff. For, for a start, it reconnects a person to the notion that they have the ability to be an actor in a financial system. So you can take responsibility as an individual. Um, right now, most people have a very passive notion of what their role in a financial system is. It's just like, oh, we receive services from these huge intermediaries that do something. They could be ethical or unethical, but you know, at the same time, we are disconnected from them. So a lot of these sort of small-scale startups around peer-to-peer finance actually are challenging that notion that you are a passive consumer of financial services and, and that you can actually be an active producer of them. And also notice that actually there's a big difference between something like what you might call ethical finance, which is how do I be nice while I'm engaging in financial system, and something you might call a connected finance, which is how do I feel like I'm personally responsible. So something like peer-to-peer finance, if you're lending directly via a peer-to-peer finance platform, You don't necessarily have to be ethical, but you do have to take responsibility for what you're doing. Um, Right now, most people defer that responsibility elsewhere. And you actually, if you want to add a sort of ecological element to this, a large part of the reason why so much ecological destruction can occur in the financial system is none of the people who are involved have any direct experience of the ecological destruction. If you are on, are on on a small island and there was a small island financial system, you would be very, very conscious of ecological destruction and you would stop it as soon as it would happen because you would realize it was occurring. So a lot of the kind of decentralized forms of finance coming out now actually have a potentially very positive ecological side to them as well. So on, the, on the example of, of, a, of a, a very simple financial innovation, I mean, I, I've got a mate called Bruce who started something called Abundance Generation, which is just a simple lending platform where you can lend directly to renewable energy. You know, again, in and of itself, something like that is not profound, but, you know, it's not going to change the entire system. But it, that forms a blueprint for how you might imagine something in the future might be. Um, I've got another, another mayor who's got started something uh, called Brixton Community Shares, where basically you and your local community are um, lending directly to solar power projects in the local South London neighborhood of Brixton. Again, there's there's a sort of, there's a double edge here, you know, you're getting involved in community projects, so you have a kind of emotional connection to the thing you're investing in, plus there's there's an environmental angle to it um, and a personal responsibility angle to it. So it's a much more connected form of finance there. And outside of the financial sphere, there's actually a lot of these really interesting kind of things that are complementing that in a way. Like, uh, I'll be honest, I don't know about in, uh, over in, in Canada, stuff, but, you know, in, in London, you're seeing a lot of uh, um, kind of these maker communities developing. People who want to actually start m- making stuff and manufacturing stuff for themselves or kind of um, going back in, in a way to the notion that you actually as a your role in an economy is to be a creative producer of things, not a passive consumer of things. So there's lots of uh, movements like that right now, which I'm seeing.
1: Just to close out, I wanted to see if you had any thoughts on how we can respond to the next financial crisis that's developing. And if you had maybe one thing that you could recommend to anybody listening uh, right now that they could start doing to kind of disrupt the status quo in finance.
8: What happened in the current financial crisis is actually as it as it hit nobody really had any coherent alternatives in sort of in place. One of the reasons why I'm very interested in sort of experimenting with lots of these alternative models, uh, whether it be sort of cooperative structures or peer to peer systems or open source stuff or even you know cryptocurrencies the reason why you want to be experimenting with them is to sort of try and beta test them as it were to use a sort of software phrase you kind of kind of sort of figure out what about those things is potentially powerful or what's what doesn't really work such that you actually get experience for when the financial crash actually comes you have something some alternative to to pose um, one thing you'll you'll see developing right now in sort of new economy movements is the notion that actually what you want to develop is diversity in a system. Part of the reason why you can have crashes is because uh, the financial system is like a monoculture. It tries to do the same thing all the time. So it's prone to crashing. And actually what you want to try to do is develop a much greater diversity of different types of institutions targeting different parts of society. Um, So more localized banks um, credit unions that's in a way is a very different notion to say a more revolutionary concept which is you've got to replace one system with something completely different um, in terms of what, what what people themselves should do i think the first thing i would ever recommend anybody who wants to try and grapple with a financial system is try to come to an understanding of money um, money is perhaps the most the least understood thing in the whole of society, generally, and yet at the same time one of the most pervasive concepts in our lives, and it's one of the most disempowering things. So, if you can spend a lot of time reflecting on and coming to grips with what you understand by money and how money actually works, you can be in an incredibly strong position to understand not only the financial system but the much the broader economic system that you interact in. Um, and the other thing I'd say is. If you're a person who is interested in building a new economy, as it were, you have to start testing stuff. And it's not really that useful sort of reading books about things necessarily. What you really want to be doing is going out and testing something and seeing what you like about it, what you don't like about it. Because it's only in that process that you actually learn about that and it's only in that process that the actual people who are trying to build alternatives get any feedback. Um, So I I wish that activist movements would just spend a a lot more time just testing alternatives out. So that's something very useful you can get involved in. On the platform, they wait and anticipate
4: the battle that lies ahead. Calls to be made, invoices to be paid, and all to keep us from the red. Pray to the prophet and offset the loss. On your knees and give thanks for insurance and banks and the men in the gray flannel suits. I love this bit. They gave us third world debt sold us the internet all for a diary and ceramic pig. They make the world revolve, factories and jobs dissolve. In voice, we sing of their rise and their fall, but don't get one jot of it all. It was great to have
1: both Ben Dyson of Positive Money UK and also Brett Scott on our show today because they're both in the city of London and London being one of the world's major financial centers, it's seeing more and more people like we're hearing about from Brett Scott that they are working inside the system and they're seeing the problems inside the system and so you get the people like Brett was saying who you know works at a you know a big bank and is doing financial trading and has a blog about being a socialist and a socialist perspective on you know financial capitalism so you have a lot of dissidents inside the system and they're really starting to speak up and they're starting to speak up in intelligent ways as people like Brett who have a knowledge of the system and then educate people who see themselves as trying to change and act on the system steer them in ways that they can be much more effective. And it's really exciting to see that kind of
0: community building in London. These organizations, these banks, these large government institutions, they're made up of people. Each of those people have their own set of moral codes. If you get them by themselves and you say like, here's the opportunity to make a real positive change in the world, would you like to do it? And I would say that a majority of those people would say yes, they would like to do it. They would like to have that meaningful change in the world if they could. And a perfect example of somebody working inside the system was Brett. Example: He is somebody who actively wanted to make that change, and he got in there and gave us a perspective that we don't normally see. Being a part and then changing them from the inside gives you a really good perspective in being able to change the system? Well, it might give you a
1: lot of knowledge on the system working from the inside, but as Brett definitely touched on today, it doesn't necessarily guarantee that you're going to be able to change it. Even though people inside major bank, like say Barclays or HSBC or even Goldman Sachs, they might completely be aware as to how their larger company is screwing over the world or how the laws and institution itself is causing environmental or social damage, but be powerless to change it itself because it is such a complex system. Even once you get up to the Jamie Dimon level, you know, imagine if Jamie Dimon were to come out and as running JP Morgan and say, you know, we're going to put all of our money into funding projects that are completely completely chosen based on their social outcome. Like maybe that's something that we think would be better for the world. But I promise you that every investor who puts his or her money into Goldman Sachs is going to seriously consider whether they want to do that. And even if half of the investors in Goldman Sachs decided to keep their money in that kind of scenario, the other half would flee and the company would go under.
0: Maybe working within the company, there's not that much power, but there's definitely a perspective that you gain working inside one. Absolutely. And I think that perspective is valuable. And I think that having that insider knowledge about way these companies run give you a lot more ability to change from the outside. I was listening to NPR today and a former senator was talking about how working inside the Senate, working inside the government, there's not a lot of room for change. And this is because the system is just so bogged down and there's so many different loopholes and all this archaic power that just hangs out and is really hard to move. And he said the only way to really make a change is getting outside of the system and working from the outside in. And this is a really interesting perspective that I think Brett brings up. That's why even though discussions around the problems within our
1: money system are really important to have and identifying the structure drivers of the issues that the implicit bias that happens when our money is created, that simple process is, it's a really important discussion to have, but actually putting forward an alternative and changing it is such a difficult road because there's really no more institution that has more power in our society and in our world than money and our ideas of money and what it does for us. And, you know, if you imagine a kind of scenario where you have to break down the system of money and install a new one, the kind of political power and entities that have supported the current institutions over hundreds of years are essentially immovable. It's like immovable force. And none of these things you get to really change or move unless there's someone who loses out. The system still exists because somebody's benefiting from it. And even though the scales may have tipped, And so that no longer are the majority of people benefiting from it, like now the people who are benefiting from it are a smaller proportion of society, there's still part of society who's benefiting from it. And it's really hard to go in and attack that fortress and tear it down and create something new. And in that process, it's extremely disruptive, which most people are going
0: to, I think, choose to not have it disrupted. That brings up an interesting point that we often talk about on this show and the fact that humanity really always needs that impetus to change. Oftentimes, that organic transition that we so hope for in most of our lives, you know, moving from one job to another or, or you know, moving from one relationship to another. It doesn't always happen as smoothly as we want. We need to have these sudden abrupt changes for the change to actually happen. It's never a fun time when you have to experience that loss and that pain that comes along with a change that's just so abrupt. But oftentimes, this is the only way to make a change is to have that abrupt cutting off of an old system. Human nature is such that it doesn't want to be disrupted.
1: It seeks, first of all, security. And then once it has... As security, it seeks to grow and expand and consume resources. In a lot of scenarios, renewable and green energy systems have not been widely adopted in society because they're inherently more costly because fossil fuels are have had 100 years of infrastructure and Head Start and financial institutions that arose to develop them. A lot of people don't buy, say, renewable energy with storage because it's so expensive. In Japan, when Fukushima happened and there were power shortages, wealthier members of society, even though it was a 30-year payback and a 10-year warranty on these particular fuel cell generation systems, that people rushed out and bought them to put them in to their homes, even though it didn't necessarily make like any sort of rational economic sense from a traditional perspective, they rushed out and put those systems in place. The simple act of disruption causes people to then completely change their perspectives to then go for things that maybe didn't necessarily add up in a traditional economic equation. Given a lot of the trends that are happening around the world today, especially with systems of money, you see that in, say, like Bitcoin, because the first place in the world to launch a brick-and-mortar Bitcoin bank that I'm aware of was in guess where Seth Mm, China close but not really close Cyprus like we talked about with Ben today because Cyprus had such a visceral and severe cutoff in their banking system and disruption in their ability to access their funds trust was lost in the system and people are looking for alternatives and Bitcoin is one of those alternatives that people jumped into
0: as we've seen with the Arab Spring and the Occupy movement these are not just one-off events these are happening all over the world continuously even this year, we've had a lot of huge uprisings, especially in Venezuela, Bosnia, Ukraine, Iceland, Thailand, Argentina, all these cr- aggressive economic forces. And people are just rising up against it. And they're telling their governments that this is not working for them. This is not something that they want anymore. The forces that have kept people in poverty and in many places in hunger for so very long. It's just not working for the people anymore. And especially when you see examples of wealth and opulence in the news media with it, connections to the internet more and more proliferating across the globe, it becomes easier for people to imagine a lifestyle in a world where they can live in upper middle class luxury. When you are living with a hand-to-mouth place or you know you don't have electricity on a daily basis, this is a very attractive lifestyle and many people around the world are looking to have this kind of luxury or at least have food on a regular basis. And
1: that takes us to our first News item today, and this is from The Guardian, also in the UK, just like our two guests today. And the headline is Global Riot Epidemic Due to Demise of Cheap Fossil Fuels. And this is by Nafis Ahmed in The Guardian. And it's basically just about the wave of civil unrest that's sweeping the globe at the moment, whether, as you were just saying, Seth, you know, Ukraine, Argentina, all of these countries where their economic systems are becoming so unstable and they're cratering, it's leading to this constant kind of positive feedback loop where people uprise against terrible economic conditions and then the disruption disrupts the system which leads to more terrible economic conditions elsewhere in the world and it's like a continual cycle and because no one person really holds the control switch you know can dial it up or down it's a lot of different people trying to grab different control switches and dial them uh, it leads to a lot of serious problems that have cascading effects that you don't even know what's happening until it has happened. And so it's a really crazy process out there. And so we'll link to that article along with a few others in our show notes. Another of which that's worth bringing up is a trend that we've been talking about on our show is from the BBC. And this is just a simple article on how India's economic growth is set to reach a near decade low. We've been talking about the impact of hitting those limits to growth or at least if not hitting the limits to growth, definitely what I would call we're hitting the speed limits to growth. And it's causing this kind of systemic unwinding and instability to become much more severe. And so this article is just saying that countries like India that were part of you know the BRIC nations, the Brazil, India, Russia, China, of the world that were like the fast growing places, the places to put your money that were growing really quickly. Now they're hitting a point where they can't really grow as fast as they used to because of infrastructure and a lot of the demand in so many countries was built on China's rapid growth. And when one of them slows down, it has these cascading effects where it affects all of the others. India's GDP is hitting about 4.9 percent Which is about half of what the double digit growth
0: that they were getting and expecting, you know, even a few years ago. That's just like we were talking about last time that a small change in the Chinese economy would send the whole world into a into a tailspin. And that takes us to our our third and last news article to bring up today. And this
1: one's from a Taiwanese um, newspaper, the Want China Times. And in this article, the headline is Chinese cities outstripping whole countries in infrastructure debt. And so a lot of the growth in China that we've seen over the last few years has come from investment and especially investment in infrastructure. And in fact, the scale of this investment is so huge that this article saying that spending by the the city of Wuhan on infrastructure construction alone is equivalent to the entire United Kingdom's expenses for our, its entire country's infrastructure. Just the capital of China's Hubei province, Wuhan, is spending more on infrastructure than the whole country of the UK. <laughs> Isn't
0: that That's crazy? An incredible amount of money.
1: Yeah, it's an unbelievable amount of money. And a large part of the money that's financing cities like Wuhan and others in China is through debt. And because everyone has this vision in their mind that you know we're going to urbanize so many people hundreds of millions of people all across china they'll have to have places to live right and so a lot of people in in cities in china are putting tons of money into building houses and building you know condo towers and building massive roads and it leads to this ghost city phenomenon that we've discussed in the past on our on our podcast with people like john michael greer comparing it to the infrastructure spending of an entire country really puts it into perspective
0: one place that is not turning investment dollars into ghost cities is The Extra Environmentalist. And thanks to your fantastic donations, we here at The Extra Environmentalist have been reaping the benefits of your dollars flowing in. And it's wonderful to see the outpouring of generosity that our listeners provide us with every week.
1: And part of those donations for many of the people has been the promise of t-shirts, which we have thus far failed, completely failed at delivering on. But Despite several month long saga of t-shirt sourcing and other things that began in December with many promises to have it ready in January and then February, we have since moved on. And on to a local supplier here in Vancouver who has been unbelievably responsive and excellent to work with. And so we're getting those last little bumps ironed out on our T-shirts and getting ready to ship those off. So, yes, it's been a little bit of a delay, but we're excited to unveil our brand new T-shirt design as well as our new T-shirts Right around the time that this episode is going to come out, if not soon after.
0: Justin, are we going to post one of these t-shirts up on the website so people can have a look?
1: Yeah, yeah. We're going to throw an image up on the website when this episode comes out um, on or around the 10th. So we're going to figure out those details. You know, the end of this week, we're recording on March 3rd today. And so, yeah, we're going to get an image of that up on the website. So if you go to extraenvironmentalist.com after this podcast
0: comes out, we'll have a big image of the t-shirt. Up on the site. And you too can have a t-shirt by donating to the show, extraenvironmentalist.com. Send us a donation of thirty dollars or more, and you can get a t-shirt shipped to your door, along with some fantastic stickers that we have. And I don't know if we've been talking about them much, Justin, but these stickers are these stickers are fantastic. And I have I put them on all my electronics. I put them on my work video cases. I put them on my cell phone. I think there's one on my laptop. There's, you know, they're everywhere I go. And I put them on my water bottles. Uh, I give give them out to friends and they put them on their water bottles. These stickers are really, really nice. They are waterproof. I got a Twitter image from
1: Jeff who said, keep up the great work. And it's got our extra environmental sticker there on it. And so if you want to tweet us, or take a picture of you in a shirt or, uh, you know, extra environmentalist sticker. That's great. And people who are going to be receiving some stickers through their recent donations are Nancy in Colorado.
0: We got a generous donation from Natalie out in Vancouver who apparently just walked right up to Justin and handed him a $20 bill.
1: Yeah, at our filming of Richard Heinberg at the University of British Columbia, Natalie came up and gave me some cash to donate to the show, which was extremely generous of her to do. So, you know, when our PayPal, or Stripe or any online source is not something you want to do and you just want to walk up and hand one of us cash, by all means, you know, go for it. We really appreciate it. We put it right back into the fund and use it to do things like purchase our brand new mixer, which will make all kinds of things like in our last episode when we recorded with Stan Peel, we ended up losing about half the interview because of some crazy thing that Skype does when I'm have a guest here in person and recording with Seth via Skype. So fortunately, we won't have to worry about that again. Thank you, Natalie. And also thank you to Freddie from
0: Massachusetts for donating. Also, thanks to Derek out in Washington. Thanks for that very, very generous donation and you too will have a t-shirt coming your way you can find past episodes of the show by heading over to extra environmentalist.com where there's a full archive of shows for your listening pleasure to download to put on your mp3 player and take with you wherever it is that you go find us on facebook find us on twitter find us on stitcher radio and soundcloud where all of our episodes are available there as well contact us via email at podcast at extra or call us at our online voicemail message box at plus one nine one nine seven zero one nine eight seven two. And those four last letters are actually X T R A. So find us on your touch tone telephone and leave us a fantastic voicemail message.
1: Or you can go to our SoundCloud page at soundcloud.com dot slash extra environmentalist and leave us a message. That's another great way you can do that through an app on your phone or your iPad or really anything any device that you want to use. And Robin sent in an email saying that in our last episode, we were talking about getting addicted to touch screens and he wanted to bring up that, Indeed, there are many infants that are so used to touchscreens that when they are given a real book, they try to magnify the pictures on the paper by attempting to spread them apart with their fingers. Imagine growing up in a world where there were no touchscreens and no multi-touch gestures.
0: Now, what a world that is, Justin. Can you imagine when the children growing up are going to have their smart glasses where they can interact with the air and you're not going to even know if, if they're looking at you or they're looking at their glasses? It's it's a brave new world we're living in here, <laughs> and I can't wait till the paper images can actually be zoomed in. I'm I'm sure that's gonna happen. Oh, it's happening. Eventually. E-paper is being developed. Trust me, I know. Oh yeah, and you're gonna be able to zoom in with your with your Google glasses because it'll just make whatever you're seeing and your hand gestures line up together. So you don't you won't even need a a tablet. It reminds me of that film
1: Her, where I don't know if you saw it, Seth, but people are just like walking down the street completely absorbed in their devices. And it's so crazy. And literally this morning, like right after the Oscars were on, I was walking down the street and there was a woman walking down the street just talking and she was completely on her phone, completely oblivious. And I was like,
0: we're already in that world. It's already here. We are already in that world, Justin. And anytime you walk around – outside these days, if, it, if it's on the bus or on the subway or anywhere you go, especially on public transit, there are people that are just absorbed into their phones anywhere you go. And it feels like if you're not absorbed into your phone, that you're doing something wrong. Like if you try to look at somebody, you're not looking at your phone. You're like, why is this person looking at me? Why, why aren't they on their cell phones? Yeah. It's so, so strange. Why are they talking to their cell phone? And even on the subway and the trains where there's no internet connection, people are still always absorbed in those things it's incredible and now our listeners are probably listening to us talking
1: on their cell phone on public transit and they're thinking yeah maybe it is weird to have these weird people
0: from canada and north carolina talking into their ears but luckily <laughs> you're at the end of this episode so take out those earbuds pick up your eyes from your smartphone look a stranger in the eyes and have a big smile but but not in a creepy way but in a non creepy way
4: i don't know have-
9: Hubei province in the heart of China. You've probably never heard of Hubei's capital city, Wuhan, but it's one of hundreds of giant cities across China undergoing an almost unbelievable transformation. Cities like Wuhan have been building and expanding as if there's no tomorrow. Since 1980, China has grown faster and more consistently than any big economy the world has seen. It became an exporting powerhouse, feeding our shopping addiction by making all that lovely cheap stuff we crave to become the second largest economy in the world. Today, Wuhan is a city turbocharged for urban renewal. A city being remade before our eyes. Flattening, excavating, pile driving, hoisting, building. Wuhan's 10 million citizens wanted all new homes, skyscrapers, a gleaming new transport system, the good life. Hundreds of apartment blocks, Industrial zones, ring roads, bridges, railways, and a second international airport, all new. This 1,200 square metre model shows an actual area of more than 200 square kilometres. We'll build all this by 2020. The rate of development spending here, 200 billion pounds over five years, is more than double what we'll spend for the entire UK. I've been to China many times and witnessed its explosive growth, but what's going on here in Wuhan is beyond anything I've ever seen. Great blocks being erected, roads being dug up, cranes literally everywhere you look. The kind of radical surgery that's being undertaken on this vast city is beyond anything I've ever experienced. But can such spending and building be sustained? are the foundations of Wuhan's and China's economic transformation as robust as they seem. They essentially gave instructions to their banks, to the phrase was, open your wallets wide uh, and and get lending. Now China's economy has become dangerously hooked on debt-fueled growth.
7: China will have replicated the entire U.S. commercial banking sector within the span of half a decade.
9: And suddenly, China doesn't look quite so economically invincible. Nothing can surely stop China becoming ever more powerful, ever richer. Or can it? Weighed down by its vast debts, China's economic miracle may be ending. Its boom shaped the world, and so too would a crash. There's no example in history of that kind of debt explosion not leading to tears before bedtime.
1: episode number 76 of the extra environmentalist we speak with canadian journalist andrew nikaforik about his new book energy slaves
6: we use energy slaves the same way the the romans the egyptians the babylonians uh, the mayans um, used uh, human slaves so you know in ancient rome what did they use slaves for they used them to grow crops so we have energy slaves like tractors we have fertilizers we have all kinds of mechanical cedars and so on that we use to get agricultural work done. The Romans used slaves to provide entertainment. So they had hunchbacks and dwarfs that would provide entertainment. We have digital slaves that provide us with entertainment. So we have our uh, laptop computers, our iPhones, our televisions, our digital slaves providing all kinds of entertainment for us, right?
0: One day I'm just gonna get away from this place and go camping in the forest. Maybe I'll string up a hammock, maybe I'll start fire and maybe I'll just have a fun time. Wake
6: you, wake you, Jim. You got a case of those Mondays you dozing off at the desk? We are under a lot of pressure from our shareholders right now, and we need you to churn out this Excel model, this pricing model for this new environmental green energy company. It's probably a lot of junk from my perspective, but you got to work on this all week. Work until 10 PM, whatever it takes, but make sure you run that model and have it to me, my
0: desk on Monday drop everything else, run Oh numbers. man, you had me here last week, boss. Why do I gotta do this again? I don't wanna do this. Look, I know it's a lot of books,
6: it's a lot of material to sort through, but you're the guy who's new in the company, and you're the one who had this kind of environmental education, so you gotta run through these numbers and run the finance for it. Let
0: us know, is it a good investment? Ah, oh, jeez. okay. Wow, these numbers look really good from last year. Where are they getting their resources from? How are they making so much money? It seems like whatever country this company is operating in, the environmental footprint of that whole country just goes down. This is wild and it's very environmentally friendly. This company looks like it's just pulling in bank. Holy moly, I need to buy some stock in this company. What's the name of this company? I don't even... Oh, here we go. and Green Energy. Huh, what a great name.
6: Here's where it's at. Do you have those numbers for me? Have you put the kind of necessary financial modeling into that spreadsheet that I told you to last week?
0: Well, boss, I stayed up all week long. I did all the due diligence and I think that you're gonna be pretty impressed. Holy moly, these profit numbers are amazing. Their
6: operating costs are hardly anything. How do they make so much money? They seem to have found the cleanest,
0: most perfect fuel source ever.
6: Well, I'm gonna run this through legal, but if these numbers stand up, we might be sitting on a gold mine.
0: Soilent Green Energy is making its IPO tomorrow. With record numbers, it seems that this company has found the perfect fuel source. Everywhere it goes, it seems to be making tons of money, and people are just going crazy over Soiling Green Energy. Everywhere, it seems like people are just dropping like flies for this amazing, amazing energy source. As an exclusive to everyone watching XCNBC right now, we go live to the Chief Financial Officer at Soiling Green Energy.
1: Well, thanks for having me on. Uh, You know, people are just dying to get our products and we're more than happy to provide it. And we're really excited to issue our IPO today. Uh, There's more hype about us than Twitter, than Facebook, than any of these other companies. And based on all of these consultants that have done analysis, they show that our numbers stand up to reality and we're ready to go big. What do you think, guys? Is this a buy or a sell? Buy. 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 Buy.
5: You heard it from our top analyst here. It's all a buy. Buy big, buy a lot of it. This IPO is going to be huge.
0: Wow, the Soil and Green is taking off like crazy. All due to my financial report that I issued last week. I have a phone? Where did I get this phone installed? People never call me. I'm just a low level analyst. Well, I guess I'll see who it is. Hello? Is this Jim? Yes? Look deeper into Soil and Green Energy. What what do you mean? Look deeper, how? Look deeper. What do you mean? Look di- Who is that? Look deeper. Southern green. What does that mean?
6: What do you want, Jim? You're coming in here take it up.
0: Hey boss, uh, not got to run some numbers by you real what, quick. What let's... do you want,
6: Jim? Look, you did you did your analysis. Take the week off. It was it was good work and this IPO is huge, all right?
0: Yeah, but the the soil and green numbers are just they're just not adding up. You know, look on page 13. This 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 graph here, there's no
6: way that they... Look, the UN is already talking about a new program called Dad based on this technology, where they're actually going to pay people in order to take part in the green energy program. China is creating drones based on Soyulant Green Energy's technology. The drones are finding whatever's causing the pollution, and China's pollution problem's going away, and it's finding the rich people and causing them to sign up for the program. It's everything we've ever wanted. It just doesn't seem right, boss. I I just don't. Get, Get out of here, Jim. I've had enough of this.
0: Well, took my boss's advice and uh, went on that two-week vacation he's been telling me to go on for about f- three years. Finally did that thing, and man, was it worth it? Wait a second. There's riots! Oh my goodness, it seems like there's a riot going down the street. What? What's happening? Oh my goodness! I better go inside and listen and turn on the news and see what's happening. Solar Green Energy is actually using people as fuel. Now, how did you find out about this first?
6: Then An insider inside the company was seeing how people were just voluntarily subscribing to this program where they would get paid to incinerate themselves, and they were doing it and we were blown away at how it was happening. We we're trying to trace the chain of who made this decision. It went through all of these complex financial institutions and it made a lot of money and who knows who signed off on it originally.
0: There are riots everywhere all over the globe where and Green Energy is delivering its power to the people. Uh, it seems that people are not wanting this power any longer when they know it's made of their neighbors. We go live to one of the riots right now where our on the ground reporter is taking a pulse on the crowd. You know who else has gone
1: public? Physics professors!
4: Mining
1: school! Well, Steve, we're here at one of the riots, and I think this is just really a story about how when there's enough financial incentive, people are willing to invest in their own demise.
0: Back to you in the studio.